start in verse 2. I'm going to read to verse 17. 1 Samuel 7, chapter, chapter 7 and verse 2 all the way down to verse 17. From the day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord, and serve Him alone. And He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines." So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. They gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew to near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. Then the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin, and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities with the Philistines had taken, which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel from Ekron even to Gath. And Israel deli- delivered uh, their territory from the hand of the Philistines, so there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. This is, well, I, I, sorry, I need to keep reading. Now, Samuel, there's more, there's more, there's a final point. Now, Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on a circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then, his return, then he would return to Ramah, for his house was there. And there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Now, um, I'm going to tell you all something that happened. We, we used to, when I was um, 22, to about 25 or 26, uh, we used to go to, you know, we had the, you know, I was going to church every time the door was open, right? You know, <laughs> 8.30 in the morning. Sunday school, go back at 4 o'clock, do choir practice, 6 o'clock Bible study, 7 o'clock sermon. And when it was over at 8 o'clock, we'd go over to a friend's house. And my friend would make spaghetti or he'd make uh, sloppy joes, and then we would have popcorn, and we'd watch another sermon because we were really into it, and we're going to watch another sermon. And so that night, uh, one night we were there, and um, I, I think I can just turn over here to it and read this to you, what I heard 
this minister say. Now, I love, I like this guy, but this is something he said. It just really, really got me. In 2 Samuel chapter 11, he said this, Then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle that David died. And I thought to myself, that's a horrible, why did he say that? And this is what he said. It would have been better if this text had read, David died than for him to do what, did, what he did next. Now that sounds kind of good to us, doesn't it? Well, I think it sounds awful. Let me tell you why I think it's awful. <laughs> I'm not glad David sinned. I'm not. But I sure am glad that God knew what He was doing to work through David's sin to teach us so many things that you and I need, Psalm 32, Psalm 51, etc. and so on. I'm so glad to have those psalms that God worked out through Him, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so that we have those words that teach us how to deal with our sin. David did sin. The man after God's own heart did Sin, he did that day when he should have gone out to battle, when he should have gone to the office, he went up on top of the roof. He did. He went up there and he saw someone. He lusted for that someone. He sent for that someone because he could. He's the king. He brought her to himself. He treated her like she was his wife. And then she became pregnant. And so he wants to cover it up. Well, he tries to cover it up by bringing Uriah back off the battlefield. Well, Uriah, that, that, that didn't help. He wouldn't even go to see his wife. And so Uriah, eventually he sent Uriah and made sure that he was killed on the battlefield. He did everything he could to cover it up. But God saw it. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, David is confronted by Nathan the prophet. But before I tell you about being confronted by Nathan the prophet, I want to tell you what he's saying about things in Psalm 32. David, between the sin and the time that he confessed his sin, about nine or ten months goes by. And David, in his heart, he has murdered this man, he's committed adultery, and he will not confess his sins. He will not say this. He's keeping silent. He's sorrowing. He's moaning. He's groaning. In fact, he says, My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, night and day. God's hand was heavy upon me. <laughs> he's sapped. His strength is sapped with the fever heat of summer. He's groaning and he's moaning and he will not repent. And then in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan the prophet comes and we could tell the story, but Nathan comes and tells him a story, tells him a parable. He's really wise. He's dealing with his friend. He's also dealing with the king. He takes his bony finger out and he sticks it right in his chest and says, You're the man. You have sinned and done what is evil in God's sight. The Lord has given to you, David, the kingdom. The Lord has given to you the victory over Saul. The Lord has given to you his house and his wives. And he would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord and do what you have done, the evil that you've done in his sight? And to all this, David said, I've sinned. Nathan said, the Lord has taken away your sin. You're not going to die. And then David penned Psalm 51. I need Psalm 51. I need Psalm 51. And in our text, we have the Israelites, and they are also groaning and moaning for 20 years. Lamenting after the Lord, we're told in our passage of Scripture, for 20 years. 
and they are being the the prophet Samuel is playing the role of, of Nathan. Prophet Samuel's taking his bony finger out and pointing it into their chest, and he's pointing out their idolatry and their immorality, and he tells them there to repent in verse two. And so tonight we need to be thinking about this this question: How do I deal with my sin scripturally? And I want to give you some C's, hopefully easy to remember. Concrete response. Second, crying, confessing your sins. Third, crying out to the Lord by faith. And fourth, commemorate the Lord's deliverance. And I'm going to add one little thing at the end. Plod along. Okay? Plod. This is one of my favorite words. Plod along. So first, concrete response. Now, our, children, our children's catechism says repentance is to be sorry for sin. That's the very first part, to be sorry for sin. We're going to go to the next part later. To be sorry for sin. And David groaned for nine or ten months. Israel's groaned for 20 years. We said, the last time we talked about this passage, we said it's, it's, it's good to sorrow. That's a good place to start, to feel emotionally bad about your consequences. But... Here the prophet pushes them for a concrete response. And here's the response he's wanting. Verse 3, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, rid yourselves of the foreign idols and the ashtaroths and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve Him only. So if we're going to deal with our sins scripturally, we have to start with being sorry for our sins. And the next part of the children's catechism is this, to hate and forsake those sins. Hating forsaking, there's some concrete response because it is displeasing to God. God won't have any uh, rivals. God wants you and you alone to worship Him and no other God. And this response is to be ongoing. It's to be all of your life. Remember the first thesis and the 95 thesis that Martin Luther wrote is that repentance is something for all of our lives. And so, you, and then I want to say this before we go. I think this is important. Sometimes we think, oh man, I just can't turn from my sin. It's got me. It's, got, it's really got me. Well, you know what? You turn to God and say, turn me and I will be turned. Give me the grace to turn. Give me what you require of me. Give me the grace. How do I deal with my sin? First, we have to turn. We have to do something that's real and concrete. Second, you must confess your sins. And this is in verses 5 and 6. Now, this is really cool because the, the prophet, he takes his bony finger and he puts it in his pocket and he comes back out with both of his hands. This is where he comes out as the priest. This is where he comes out and he offers a sacrifice. And this is where he comes out and he begins to pray for the people. And as he does this, he does this because it says in verse 4, look at what it says. So the sons of Israel listened to this word about repentance and ridding themselves of their, their uh, gods. And it says Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtaroth and served the Lord alone. And so these, these guys are going to get ready to confess their sins. And they do two things. Their priest, Samuel, is going to offer a sacrifice. And he's going to hold his hands up for them in intercessory prayer. But they do two things to get ready. They, do, they draw water, and they pour it out before the Lord, and they fast. Now, what does it mean to draw water and pour it out before the Lord? Now, most commentators, they don't know what to do with this, but I think I know what to do with this. <laughs> I think I know what to do with this. Now, you and I, we don't think about water the same way that they did. 
look around. We could. There's a bathroom here. There's a bathroom there. There's a sink right there. There's a sink in every probably one of these rooms. There's water over there. Water's pumped into this place all over the place, right? Now, back in those days, what did they do to get water? The woman at the well, what's she doing? She's doing it at noon because she doesn't want to you know, get in trouble with friends. Look at that woman, look at that woman. And then there's people, most of the time they get it in the morning, they get it in the evening, they have to go get the water. It's necessary to live. They get it in the morning, they get it in the evening because it's necessary. You and I, we don't think about it like that. But water's absolutely necessary for their lives. And what they're doing is they're taking this water and they're pouring it out. And they're saying, this water that's necessary for my life, I'm pouring it out and saying, you are more necessary than this water. You're more important than the water. Have you ever heard that verse that Job says that your words are more necessary to me than my daily food? Well, they fasted as well. Sorry. They fasted as well, and they gave up their food, and they're saying, you are more important. Your forgiveness of our sins is more important than my daily food. And so after all this preparation, Israel confesses her sins to the Lord, and they say, we have sinned against the Lord. That's the pattern of asking and confessing our sins, asking for forgiveness Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. 1 John 1, 9, everybody ought to be able to quote it. We could quote it together. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and he is righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Verse 8 says, If we say we have no sin, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. We're deceiving ourselves in the truth. Is not in us. So we must repent of our sins in a concrete way. And we must confess our sins with our mouths if we would like to find compassion. If you don't know God through Jesus Christ this evening, then I would say to you, this is the way. Now there's that Mandalorian story in that this is the way. This is the way. <laughs> this is the way to right standing with God, confessing your sins. If you're a child of God tonight and you haven't repented of your sins in nine months or in so many years, I would ask you why if you call yourself a child of God. Why would you find why would you want to be under the heavy hand of God like David and the Israelites? Are you groaning tonight? Are you moaning tonight? Go to the Lord and find his compassion. We must do what Israel did, and we must confess our sin and call it what it is. Our sin is not a disease. Our sin is not a mistake. Our sin is not my mother's fault. Well, a lot of people want to blame mom, right? A lot of people might want to blame dad or blame the environment or blame their genes. But sin is what it is. It's not a crime against the state. It's an offense against God. The word there in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess, it means to agree with God against ourselves. <laughs> we have sinned. We need to agree with God about that. And then we can find compassion. David said it. I have sinned and done what is evil in thy sight. The prodigal son said it. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The tax collector said it. God, have mercy on me, the sinner. And when you say it and you mean it, it means you go home close to God. 
close to God. It's just, it's just the opposite of what we think sometimes, right? The person who confesses their sin is the one who goes home with God and it, who humbles himself, that person is exalted. In public worship, so many times we, we come every Sunday, don't we, have, in our liturgy, we come and confess our sins. It's not the popular thing to do. Go to other churches and you'll find in the liturgy it's not even there. Why? Why is it not there? Well, it's not popular. It's not successful sounding. It's not exciting. It's not optimistic. But if you want to go home knowing the sweetness and the fellowship and the compassion of God, well, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who turn from their sins. So when the minister leads you in a prayer of confession, those words are written down there. Read those words and make those words your own. In your own private worship of God, you spend time confessing sins. And as we grow in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and as we grow in our Bible studies and we grow in our Bible reading, we need to confess our sins. We need to confess our sins privately. We need to confess our sins to each other if we hurt each other. We need to talk to each other face to face. We need to be face to face. And we need to tell the Lord. And I think as we learn more and more, we, we repent of the fact that we're sinful. I'm sinful. I don't, I'm not perfect. I, I want to do the perfect, but I don't find myself doing the perfect. And I'm glad that I have Christ. Well, third, how do I deal with sin scripturally? You and I must cry out to the Lord by faith. Now, why, why do we need to cry out? Where are we going to get this out of this passage? Look at verse 7. Here's where the faith comes in. Now when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Remember the Philistines? The Philistines are still around. <laughs> and all these Israelites at Samuel's command have gone to Mizpah to worship God, to repent of their sins, do concrete things, confess their sins, and so on. And guess who heard that they're there all gathered together? The Philistines. Remember, the Philistines are still being used by God to oppress Israel for their sins, oppressing them. They've taken over some of the land that belongs to the children of Israel because of their sins. What happens when you start doing the right thing? <laughs> what happens when you start turning from your sin and you confess your sin? You know what happens? You are going to be tried. And God is going to, it's almost like God is saying, do you really mean it? Do you really mean this repentance? Are you really going to trust me now? And so here they are. The Philistines are coming. The big, big bad Philistines are on the way. The people are doing what is right. And here they are at Mizpah. And guess what? They don't have a weapon. They're vulnerable. This is totally vulnerable to the extreme. Do they have faith? Now, you know, one of the things we'd like to say, one of the things you'll always hear somebody say, is wherever there's repentance, there's going to be faith. Wherever there's repentance, there's going to be faith. And so we have two sides of the same coin. If you're turning from your sins, you're turning to the Lord. There's nothing for these folks to rely on. 
They have no props, no friends, no weapons to fight with. They're going to be slaughtered unless the Lord intervenes for them against these enemies. And so they say to Samuel, or Samuel says this, do not, or they say to Samuel, do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Look at those words, do not cease to cry. I think sometimes we just read past those words. Do not cease to cry. This is a cry of desperation. The people are crying out to their mediator to pray to God for them that they might be saved. There's nothing. They're hemmed in. They're in a box. They're in the great fish. They're in a pigsty. There's no way out except God. And so their mediator, Samuel, he takes their sins and places them on a lamb and offers that lamb up to God, and then he intercedes for them, and the Lord answered. Look at verse 3. It's exactly what God said he would do in the first place. And you rid yourself of your idols. You do this concrete repentance, and he, verse 3, will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. And even while Samuel is sacrificing this burnt offering, the Philistines are drawing near. The Lord thundered a great thunder against them and threw them into chaos. There's deliverance. And then the Lord led those men out of Mizpah to defeat the Philistines with a great slaughter. The Lord kept his promise. The Lord keeps his promises. He rescued them from their enemies. You know, the Lord at times will remove everything from you to press you to completely rely upon him alone. The Israelites turned to their mediator. He presented a sacrifice. He held up his arms to intercede for them and You and I, we have a mediator. His name is Jesus, and he is the sacrifice. He is in his body and blood our sacrifice, and he's the one who intercedes for us without ceasing. You know, sometimes in the church, I think that we've seen people uh, in their church growth strategies, they think that they're going to grow because they come up with clever devices and clever things. But, you know, our church is going to grow not based on cleverness. Have you all figured that out yet? Our church is going to grow because we preach Jesus Christ alone and that we depend on Him alone. And it is all about humbling ourselves and saying we're sinners. You know, people people are asking me, what's the deal here? What's going on? And I'm going, well, I think one of the deals that's going on here is that we're willing to talk to each other. And I hope God is driving our pride down so that we might be humble and tell each other what's going on and people love face-to-face love and conversations about things that are real these things that are real our church is going to grow because of the confession that jesus christ is lord and so may we as we said this morning, may we be vigilant about the apostles' doctrine. And may, be, may we be vigilant about the sacraments. And may we be vigilant about prayer and fellowship. And when God kicks out all our props, may we stand only on Jesus. But also when we think about this, it touches our lives, not just our church. Have you ever personally been hemmed in? Ever been in the fish? That's just an easy one to use. You ever been in the pigsty of the box? It looks like there's no way out. Sometimes God eliminates all our friends, all our helps, all our supports. And what do we do? We find ourselves totally vulnerable like these guys. And what do we do? We have to turn to the mediator. We have to turn to the one who 
went to the cross for us and who intercedes for us. He brings us to these points to press us to cry out in desperation. And he's the one who fulfills all his promises. He saves us. I don't know if he's going to thunder a great thunder for you. I don't know, but he's going to do what he says. He's going to do what he says. Well, let's end with this. You must commemorate the Lord's deliverance and plod along. Look at verse 12. Then then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shin and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So God gave them victory over the Philistine oppressors. And then Samuel, he goes out and he gets a stone. He puts it up and it's a monument. He calls it Ebenezer. And the word Ebenezer means thus far the Lord has helped us. And that, that's, it's, a, it's a memorial. It's a, a commemoration. He wants, us to, he wants them to remember. Ebenezer wants to, is a word that is to remind them of God's past help as well as the present help. In the past, the Lord helped Abraham. In the past, the Lord delivered Israel out of Egypt. In the past, the Lord kept his children alive through the wilderness and helped Joshua in the conquest of Canaan. And here he is. He's helped them at Mizpah. Samuel names this stone Ebenezer for a reason. Do you remember? You probably probably don't. I had to rethink. I had to think about this. First Samuel chapter 4 is the first time Ebenezer is used. Ebenezer was used in 1 Samuel chapter 4 when the Israelites, remember, they went and got the ark and they said, let it save us. Let's go get the ark and let it save us. How'd that work out? Well, it didn't work out well. 4,000 died, 30,000 died. All this bad, bad stuff happens. Let it save us. And now this time, what are they doing? They're coming to their mediator who's bringing a sacrifice to the one true and living God. They're not talking about it anymore. They're talking about him. They're talking about the one who can save them, the one who can deliver them. And this, this man prays for them. And you and I, we need to remember the times when we tried to do this on our own, Linda. Right, she's told me a few things about how she did some things on her own. <laughs> we, we Look at Peter. We talked about Peter a few months ago, right? He tried to do it on his own, and it failed. And so re- compare those times when you were doing it on your own, and then go back and look at what happened at Mizpah. Great stuff. Trusting in God. Remember, 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 remember your Ebenezer's. Remember those times when God delivered you. God wants you to have Ebenezer's and God wants you to remember them. Well, finally, here we are. We're going to plod. Remember the Lord's deliverance and plod. What do I mean when I say plod? I've read enough. Um, I would, I would, I've actually told um, Brian Blacklock the other day, I told him, I said, you know, you need to get all of Dale Ralph Davis's commentaries and read them all. And he, he loves to use this word. He uses this word plod. And he likes to use the word slog. Plodding and slogging. Samuel finished up all his work at Mizpah and went back home to Ramah and he began to do his ordinary ministry. He was itinerating. He would go from one town to the next and he's ruling and he's making decisions. And, but he doesn't have to stick the bony finger out at them anymore because they're already repenting concretely and confessing their sin and they're having faith and all of that. So what he's doing is he's leading them in ordinary worship. What happened at Mizpah was a grand thing. It was a major ordeal, but now what he's doing at the end of our passage is he's doing ordinary ministry. 
He's plodding along. And we thank God, every one of us, and many of you have told me about some great breakthroughs and crisis experiences where things God just delivered and it was wonderful. But most of our lives are lived in the normal. Most of our lives are lived in the getting up and plodding along. And you can all tell me your routines. I can tell you mine. I, mine's, I, I, man, I can tell you. You know, up in the morning, 6 o'clock, turn the Bible on, you know, get the coffee going, coffee and cereal, study the Bible. We have our norms. These are the normal things. Most of the time we're not at Mizpah. Most of the time it's regular. And you and I need to regularly just concretely turn from little sins, confess the little things, and cry out and hold on to Jesus by faith. And remember, Ebenezer, and continue to do it every day, plotting. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity again to be with all of these dear people. We pray that these words would, would rest on our hearts, that we might improve them through this evening. Help us in this week ahead to learn to love you more to glorify you in whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, and we might enjoy, enjoy each other, enjoy our families, and enjoy you as we plod along to glory. Strengthen us now, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.